Hey everyone, I'm Jasmine. And I'm Nemo, and we're the hosts of the Four Degrees to the Streets podcast. Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Well, welcome back, everyone, to season three, episode one. We're going to be talking about the future of work. Nemo is here with me in L.A. I made the move. Um from Jersey to LA a few months ago. Super exciting. How's it feel to be in LA, Nemo? It feels great. I was just telling you, I haven't been here in like seven years. <laughs> it's just wild as a former West Coaster. It's nice to be back um, and nice to see LA for the first time. So. so we're here at WTF Media Studios in Hollywood and we're using their space and we're really happy that they have us here. So we'll jump into the episode now. We're going to talk about the future of work. Yeah, and one thing, too, over the summer, you all have probably seen us posting reels of different cities. We've been outside. Um, so we have one on Newark. Not Newark. <laughs> yes. See, I can't even say it like how I used to say it. Because you've been I, out of Jersey so I've, long. I know, but Jersey yeah. folk corrected me on my first day, and they were like, Newark is in Delaware. Mm-hmm. Um, we have one in Hoboken, um, Chicago, and San Francisco. And so please, you know, send us a message at four, the number four degrees pod and let us know what um, what other cities you want to see, because we're going to stay on the move. We got one coming up for Vegas, maybe. Yes. <laughs> Right, right. Um, so today we're going to talk about the future of work. This is probably a term that a lot of people have been hearing since COVID um, in 2020. And we're going to really define what it means, who's interested in what the future of work looks like. Um, uh, so we're going to compare some cities that have changed a lot during the pandemic, um, what that meant for their population growth and their economic development and what you see. Um, and we're also just going to share some takeaways of things that we hope people continue to think about as we do enter this new era, era two plus years post um, post the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So we'll start with what does work look like prior to COVID? I think what's important is that we realize that in the past two going on three years, all the conversations have been COVID, COVID, COVID. What has COVID done? How has COVID changed? How has your life been impacted? And so we're not going to make this episode about coronavirus. This episode is about life kind of post-COVID, if we want to use that as a term. We're kind of using the pandemic as a marker in time, similar to how you would use like a war as a marker in time, or like the great financial crisis of 2008 as like a pre and post time. So we're kind of using it as a time marker, and that's not going to be the focus of the whole episode. Right. So I hope we don't see that little CDC flag at the bottom Definitely of this episode. <laughs> like, make sure you verify your information. And it's like, we're not even talking about that. We're not even talking about it. So we'll talk mm-hmm. about life pre-2020 and what work looked like pre-2020. And so really everyone was going into their office or their workplace five days a week. I was going in five days a week, whether I was going to school or going to work, you were in person five days a week. I think the Gallup poll has some research on it. So only 8% of companies prior to 2020 offered a fully remote 
option. 8%. 8%. Oh, wow. So 60% of offices and organizations were in office five days a week. 2022, 24% of companies are offering some type of fully remote option. That's almost like three times. Isn't it? Yeah. And now it dropped down to 23% are just in office five days a week. And so you can really see the changes in pre and post. And so this episode is about, okay, if everyone was commuting, if everyone was transporting themselves from where they live to their work site, whether you work in a corporation, in an office, you work for the government, you work for the grocery store, you were going to that space five days a week. How are cities in the world kind of coping with that reduction in in, in patterns and in, in that travel pattern? Yeah, and so Deloitte, um, which is one of the big four accounting and like advisory firms, um, they've done a lot of reporting on this in the last few years in similar firms. Um, and they define the future of work as work, workplace, and workforce. And so work is activities, the value of work, the outcome of work. Um, workforce is like your skills, your human capabilities, your jobs, um, what talent you have. And then workplace is really what we want to get into in this episode, where that talks about technology, culture, the physical design, the geographic location, and any sort of collaboration that happens in the place that you work. Um, and so one of the uh, reports that we looked at, too, um, and we'll have this in the show notes, but I believe it was um, MIT, Stanford, um, University of Chicago, um, and then um, AITM, which is another university in Mexico City. So they really got like a really North American perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, and they found that uh, in New York, pre-pandemic, people were spending about $15,000 a year on shopping, food, just in when they, when they go Monday into the Friday. work. <laughs> right. Um, and then in other places like Alaska and California, they were spending about $12,000. Wow. Um, and it's like we all knew that when we went into the office, I we spent money, money. <laughs> I was so glad at home or in the... Right. And it, that's what I was going to say. It just was truly like a mindset shift. Um, now I'm like, I have not bought, I can't remember the last time I bought lunch <laughs> when I've gone into the office. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, you know, cities were relying on their commuters and the residents and people who came there Monday through Friday. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about sales tax revenue later when we go into the, um, when we go into the city comparisons. Um, but one of the quotes that I wanted to point out, it was remote work is poised to transform land use law by untethering labor from centralized workplaces and blurring the boundaries between work and home. So basically what we were just saying, when when we're at home and we're cooking, preparing our food, maybe that's a different way that we're fueling the economy and how we are, you know, for example, just nourishing our bodies versus going in and patronizing businesses that relied on us. And so when you're thinking from a planning perspective, how does land use grow with that new mindset that people have? Um, and then also too, some people never went home. I think it's important to mm -hmm. acknowledge, um, especially a lot of service jobs, um, a lot of agricultural jobs. Construction. They, yeah, they've had to keep keep cities going. Um, and I know in a lot of places um, that have more agricultural as their main source of industry in the Midwest, like South Dakota, present day, only 22% of their um, of their residents work from home or have some mm -hmm. sort of work from home component. But you compare it to places like New York and D.C., they're about like 42%. Um, and then the highest state that has a share of their days at home is like Vermont. Mm -hmm. um, Oregon and California are also pretty high too where you have a lot of people working from home so just something to be mindful of that you know people always say oh return to work and it's like well we were working we were just at home mm -hmm. and then also some people never went home <laughs> so don't rush me back to the office yeah please. so what is work looking like now what's the landscape yes yeah, so I think I'm gonna use two metrics to kind of think about 
what work looks like. And I apologize because we are kind of focusing on the nine to fiver and like the person that's going into like a corporate office or a government building. So like, it's definitely not focused on the person who's always been going into the office. It hasn't changed for them since 2019 to 2022. Mm -hmm. And so the first tenant is office occupancy. So similar to how you think about residential occupancy, right? If you live in a neighborhood in which it's only 70% occupied, how that feels compared to when it's 100% occupied. And so office occupancy basically considers how much of, you say, take an office building, vertical, 10 stories. Those buildings might have 10 tenants or they might have 20 tenants. And so the occupancy measures how many of those units that they have for lease are vacant or are currently under a lease, regardless of whether you're going into your office. Like, so in March 2020, there were all these office spaces leased up. So they technically weren't vacant, even though they were physically empty. Mm. That make that difference. Yeah, no, I didn't. I don't think I knew that, like how they. But I think it's important, like you said, to know how they define vacancy. Mm -hmm. Even just like it's vacant because no one's there, but on paper. Yeah, it's actually occupied. And so Jones Lang LaSalle, which is JLL, they're a huge developer, asset manager, capital markets provider. They're just big all over the commercial real estate space. They have a quarter two 2022 office outlook report that came out in May 2022, and it looks at rent growth, occupancy. Um, and changes in occupancy across that office spectrum. And so I'm just going to highlight some numbers from it. So pre-pandemic, office occupancy hovered around 10 to 12%. So it was about 90, 88% occupied generally nationwide. In quarter two, 2022, so quarter two, I'm forgetting my... Uh, April through June. April through June. Okay, so at the end of that period, occupancy was 20% nationwide. So it basically doubled. Still, mm. we're now two years, quote unquote, out of the pandemic. Occupancy is still at, um, vacancy is still at 20%. And so you see some regions where it's higher. So San Francisco, 22% vacancy. Houston, 25% vacancy. But then you have places like Cleveland and Philly where they're around 17 or 15%. And so it's interesting to see what makes up those regions, and it might be really good for us to dig into one particular market, which I know we will do later on this episode, we yeah. do a case study. But the rest of the report surveyed um, about a thousand corporate executives that work in the commercial real estate space, and they just wanted to know how what percentage of your office is kind of working hybrid. And so 77% of those offices are in a current hybrid schedule, mm. and 10% of them are planning to completely erase all of their office rentals, their office leases, and go 100% remote. And that was nationwide or just out of some of the cities? Out of some of, so this was a nationwide survey, but it was all for commercial real estate firms. So these were other commercial real estate firms that were going to make these changes. And so, oh, to have a more hybrid model. Mm -hmm. And so some of them were considering going, uh, like, we're not going to have any more leases in the office. We're all going to be 100% remote. So, so when you think about what that's going to look like when... Bank of America decides to pack it up. We don't need any more <laughs> office space. All of our employees have all the technology that they have working from home. What does that mean? Like, what did you did you see anything like what? Yeah, so I think the biggest trend of it is you see those vacancies in what they call Class C office buildings. So very similar to residential, a Class A, glass, beautiful, might have a grocery store on the bottom, mm -hmm. and office is the same way. A Class C office space is 
you know, your traditional suburban little office park right off the side of 95, something real regular. Yeah. <laughs> Those have the highest vacancies. So that's why I think places like Houston have oh, yeah. higher vacancies in San Francisco because their office infrastructure is probably older. And I've been to the <laughs> Houston office and it is older. And it's like removed from anything. Mm-hmm. Like that you would be going to or passing by. Exactly. The best performing office assets are the ones that are in central locations that offer a ton of amenities. Just like the best performing residential buildings are the ones with washers and dryers in windows and balconies and pools. Yeah. So you have less occupancy in that space. Yeah. Well, speaking of like comparing to residential, um, we really wanted to frame like who cares about this and Mm -hmm. why it matters. Um, and we think about residents, and so that could be residents who are already living in a town that has a lot of office spaces, but office spaces that offer a good quality of life and still things for them to do. They can maybe walk, take the train, have different options of how they get into the office. Um, and then the residents in that city, if they are seeing businesses move out, they would care because that could mean less revenue for the city to mm-hmm. provide services for them when they are living in that space. Um, and then also residents, because if they don't need to live in the city that they of where their physical office is, because they're fully virtual or because they're more hybrid, um, a lot of people are considering moving out um, mm-hmm. for a cheaper um, cost of living, um, which we're also going to talk about a lot this season. Um, but for lower cost of living, lower housing, more housing affordability, it's like, well, I don't have to live in downtown. I can mm-hmm. move out further. But that's kind of hustling backwards because as planners, we've been spending the last 60 plus years trying to reverse the <laughs> effects of sprawl uh-huh. from the prior 60 years. Yeah. So, And I think the environment piece to me is always the most curious piece. So there's two elements of it, right? On the mac- On the micro level, it's like, Okay, I no longer need to live. Let's take LA for example. Century City is kind of like the main office area. I no longer need to live in Beverly Hills or Mid City. I can move to the Valley or I can move to Temecula, like somewhere further east, where I can get a bigger house and spend about the same amount of money. So now when I do have to come into the office, my commute is even longer. So I think about greenhouse gas emissions, I think about climate change, I think about the traffic Mm -hmm. that it's taking. But on a macro level, when you talk about, and we're going to get into this on our next episode, what cities grew and what cities declined pre and post pandemic, we're looking at cities that have been traditionally tertiary, like Salt Lake City and um, outside of Denver and like Vermont and places in in New England where people weren't necessarily always moving to became popular during the pandemic because you wanted more space, you wanted more land, and you no longer needed to go to downtown or to mid-city or wherever to go to work. My concern with that is what does that do for, right? So we, in planning, we know that cities have their growth, their population growth all mapped out. And they have the idea of, okay, how much schools, how many schools do we need? Yeah. How many roads do we need? All these things. If you have a random spike in your population, as we saw a lot of cities have, how's it impacting your water and sewer systems, your school systems, your bridges and tunnels? Like, are you, are cities, is Salt Lake City reasonably prepared to have a 10% increase in population? I don't know. Like, I'm really yeah. curious to figure that out. And I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the work that Utah, it's based out of, um, uh, university in Utah um, to kind of assist cities with this, but still, are they able to move fast enough for the growth mm-hmm. that they're experiencing and offer really tangible services? Um, and we talk, we've talked a lot about people who are deciding where to live based on where they work, but I would think commuters also care about what the future of work looks like, um, especially if they were already driving a significant distance. Um, we've seen Metro and public transit have a lot of revenue um, issues since COVID and um, had some assistance from the federal government. But again, how long is that 
how sustainable is that mm -hmm. um, if people just don't feel the need to take public transit anymore because they don't have to go to work every day. Or it doesn't feel safe, right? In our last last season, we had the, the females in public space episode. Mm -hmm. We talked about the San Francisco area where my cousin, she used to ride the train all the time. And then because less people were on the train, now you can see that homeless person or that vagrant or that addict on the train. And it's kind of just, it might literally just, just be, be you, you and him on the, the on the car. Like, right. So it feels more dangerous. Like the danger always existed, but when there's, you know, there's safety in numbers. And so if people are not riding the train as much, then the service for people who would still want to ride it is also like the quality is diminished. Yeah, it's different. Um and then other folks that care, businesses um, that are looking to expand their headquarters, um, you know, like you said, they want to position themselves in a city that may already have a lot going on. Um, that might be a city that wasn't traditionally like that now because it's a city that maybe was smaller and more people are moving to it now. Biz large businesses may consider those places as their new headquarters. Um, and then also city governments, I mentioned sales tax revenue and just declining revenue that happened during mm -hmm. the pandemic. Um, they've been able to, again, use federal funds, the American Rescue Plan Act, to do pilots, to change things in their cities, to um, add to economic growth, like you said, really use the pandemic as an accelerator. Um, but those funds are temporary. What will be the things that cities keep in place? Um, and will they keep things in place based on their population and based on the people who are um, traveling into, um, into the city? So. so you want to jump into our case studies? Yeah. Um, so the first city that we looked at, um, and we wanted, what we wanted to do with these case studies is um, look at a city that had an increase in population growth. Um, specifically, we're using between 2020 and 2021. Um, and then just kind of give a snapshot of what that city's like, what they've experienced in the last year, year or two. Um, and so Georgetown, Texas, that is a suburb of um, Austin, Texas, um, and they had a 10.5% um, increase in their population from 2020 to 2021. Wow. Um, and the census published this report. Again, we'll have it in the show notes. Um, but And so their population now is about 75,000, um, which compared to a major city doesn't feel like a mm -hmm. lot. But like you said, when you're planning for resources and you have an increase in 10%, what does that mean for... In a year. Right. <laughs> literally in a year. Um, and it was interesting that a lot of people are moving to, um, to Georgetown, Texas, because Austin, Texas is, is actually one of the cities that have seen the most people go back into the office. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Texas wasn't closed. We know Texas was Right, <laughs> they were open. We're open for business. We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> um, and so their sales tax revenue funds about 8.4% of, the, of their city budget. Wow. Um, and like we've said, a lot of places saw declines, but Georgetown actually saw a 8.4%, um, sorry, they actually saw 14.5% increase year over year, um, just looking between 2019, 2020, um, in 2021, that was so the average. So they saw 10% increase in population and then a 14% increase in their sales tax revenue. Their sales tax revenue. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it's continuing to grow. Um, and so their sales tax revenue was uh, in 2021 about $3 million, And then in 2019, it was about $2.6 million. Um, so they're, they're seeing the money come in. You can just see what the power and numbers mm -hmm. do and people who are living in, um, and patronizing businesses in the city. Um, but it's also important to think about, well, who lives in Georgetown, Texas? If you're listening to this episode and you're like, well, let me see what's going on over there. Mm -hmm. Like, seems like if a lot of people are moving, this may be a, you know, just throw a dart on the map and be like, maybe I'll end up there. Um, so according to the census, Georgetown, Texas is 85% white, 19% Hispanic, um, 6% two or more races, and 4% uh, black. So just to give a kind of a snapshot of 
who makes up the majority in Georgetown, Texas, and what that might mean for how they plan resources, mm -hmm. or who even has access to live in, in the town. Because um, some, as we know, as being two black women, it's not, it, regardless of how many degrees or what mm -hmm. your income is, it may not always feel comfortable for you to be to exist in that space. And so even though this is a growing city, um, I didn't want to ignore the fact of like, okay, well, who makes up that city and who um, may see people that look like them? Yeah, and I think Georgetown was on our list of cities in our next episode that is like one of those top places for renters. And mm -hmm. we talked about that, like, okay, it might be affordable, yes. Is it walkable? Is yeah. it safe from like a crime perspective? Is it safe as a woman, safe as a black person? Like, what does the equity components look like? So on the flip side of Georgetown, we have San Francisco. And I am so tired of comparing Texas to California. <laughs> like, it's so overdone because I think, and I hope that our podcast kind of tries to blur, to clear up some of that blurred line. I think the narrative and the media has been, everybody left New York and California and moved to Texas and South Carolina. It's like, did we? Did we really do that? <laughs> yeah. And so I'm always really, I like to go deeper into the numbers because that narrative is just not, you know, yes, they lost population. Let's get into it. So yeah. San Francisco, major tech area in the Bay in California. So from 2020 to 2021, using the same census numbers that Nemo dropped in for us, they had a 6.3 decline. So Texas, Georgetown had a 10% increase. Mm -hmm. SF had a 6.3 decline. And so the census report kind of ranked the top 15 growing metros and the top and the bottom 15 declining metros. And so I looked into those numbers just to see where the other cities were. And the crazy part about it was that five of the cities on that top, on that bottom 15 list were in the San Francisco Bay area. Mm. So Daly City, 3% decline. Redwood City, 3% decline. San Mateo, Cupertino, and South San Francisco all had 3% declines. And so SF had the 6%, but then all of their little suburban towns around it also had 3% declines. And so that is letting you know they're not just leaving the city, they're leaving the region. Yeah. So something is going on in that region that's considering people to say, okay, I had enough. Mm -hmm. So then I compared... We looked at New York and D.C. just to have a comparison. Mm -hmm. And so SF decline was 6%. New York was 2.8 and D.C. was 3.8. And so cities haven't fared out well in the pandemic, but I wonder how much it'll shake out. The thing I wanted to point out with those numbers was that San Francisco between 2018 and 2019 also had similar declines. And so Petumala, Palo Alto, and Cupertino all were all cities in that bottom 15 list comparing 2018 to 2019. And so what I took from that was that COVID is, was an accelerator, right? So people were leaving this Bay Area prior to the pandemic. And when the pandemic came, they said, okay, this is it. Yeah. This is my time to actually take this move. And so when you think about, well, why would people want to leave San Francisco? You think about housing affordability, which is like literally a crisis. You think about environmental mm -hmm. concerns. You might think about traffic, um, fires, you know, like all these different things. And so you take COVID and you throw it in there and it's like, okay, that was, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I I know personally just, you know, a lot of people who made major life changes and moves um, in the pandemic and spurred different things for them, too. Um, and uh, one of the articles that I came across was, like, who is who the people that are leaving the city or moving into the city. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the census that actually showed that young white adults are actually leaving San Francisco the most. Um, but older Asian adults over the age of 70 are actually moving in. Like, they're 
retiring. And we did have this conversation. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's interesting um, to see. And I haven't spent a lot of time in San Francisco, um, but I wonder what that just looks like on a daily basis, like mm-hmm. what you see when you're out and about. Um, right, but I think we're at that point where right we talked we had our elderly in planning episode and we talked about the things that persons mm-hmm. of age need like they need walkability they need services and so you can't get that in Salt Lake City no you can't get that far out thirty miles from the city you have to be kind of core to get those services so that swap to me makes sense you talked about Georgetown's budget and, and how they were impacted so I'll bring up San Francisco's their fiscal year 2021 to 2022 and you could go to Nemo to tell you when that <laughs> begins and ends um was $145 million. Sounds like a whole lot of money to me. Yeah. But that was 20% less than their budget for fiscal year 2020-2021. And so you're losing your population, and so now you have to estimate or plan for a smaller budget, a 20% smaller budget. And so just a 6%, that was interesting to me, like a 6% decline of population resulted in you decreasing your budget, your planning, your planned spending or your planned revenue by 20%. Yeah. And then you talked about them, Georgetown, increasing theirs by 15, 14%, like, year over year, it's just crazy to think about how much money we actually spend on a daily basis. Right. And if you also look back to last season, we had a um, a how-to episode on like picking where to live, mm-hmm. right? Um, and if you are, you know, listening and thinking about, like I said, thinking about places to move and you're hearing that San Francisco has 20% less budget, you might see more cracks in your sidewalk. You might not have, you might not get the type of, you know, your neighbor might be a little bit less clean. Maybe they mm-hmm. cut back on street sweeping. Um, you know, you might just have, what does that mean for safety too? Um, if there are less public safety available, mm-hmm. if you call 911 in an emergency, how quick are they going to get to you? Like those yeah. are things that I would think about if I'm thinking about moving into a city that's not booming. And I'm in a place in my life where I do want to live mm-hmm. in a place that is, um, accelerating and there are people moving in and it's vibrant. And when you think about what happens when there's a budget cut, right? They're not cutting police. They're not cutting fire. So mm-hmm. you see those programmings maybe in the parks or you see schools. Yeah. That's where you're going to see the impact. And so when you have that population decline, then that has equity. You know who's going to be impacted the most right. by a budget cut. That means they're going to stop going to certain neighborhoods to do certain things, but they're going to make sure they go to the other ones. And we already know how that, that kind of functions. And so <clears throat> let's jump into our kind of takeaways. You want to go there? Yeah. So I think a lot of what we talked about is people leaving like we've spent this episode talking about people coming out um and so richard florida um what is he the father of i know we read about him all the um, time um planning seeing you isn't that richard florida yeah but oh the creative class he's i okay. think he's known for discussing the creative class and that's really like the people who we think about when we think about gentrification who's mm-hmm. moving in he defined them as the creative class and these are the things they want that's a nice way to put it right <laughs> Um, that's why I, that's why I always remember him. And so he wrote an article, um, Cities in a Post-COVID World. And he talked a lot about social scarring um, and really meaning that we live in fear. Like the pandemic put us in a place of fear for two plus years, even still. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get sick on a mm-hmm. daily basis. You know, you're on an airplane, you hear someone sneeze. It's like, <laughs> can you not? Did you wear your mask on a plane? I did. Okay. I did. I'm doing a little um, survey to see who's wearing they still wearing a mask on a plane. And I'm thankful that people I was sitting by were also wearing their mask. The woman next to me wasn't. But yeah, I'm like, ah. it's like, but a lot of the airports. It's not. a little too tight for me personally. Yeah. I'm just like, I don't want to share like airspace anymore, <laughs> which is what are you talking about? Like we feel fear even in crowds. Um, I'm just like, I'm feeling like I'm 
again, it's something about the breath. Like, I feel like I'm crossing people's breath too much. Like, I need to put my mask on. Okay. I will put my mask on. So, yeah. So, there's a fear. We think about these things now. Um, and so, he says this is likely to influence residents' choice, travel, commute patterns, and the economic viability of certain businesses and social gathering spaces. Um, and with that, people are moving back to the suburbs. Is basically what he mm-hmm. what he um, concluded. Um, and uh, I think that's important to think about. Again, we mentioned earlier how cities are that were either smaller or in different parts of the country. How are they um, accommodating for this growth? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Gateway and Natural Resource Amenities um, (GNAR), the NAR initiative, um, they've been doing a lot of research and providing. Um, technical assistance for cities that have been doing this. Of note, they looked at the western, they called it the western gateway. Okay. So cities on the western part of the country. We've also heard a lot about Phoenix, um, Arizona. Um, you mentioned Utah, um, other places in the west that people have been thinking about moving to. Um, and so they're either getting heavy tourism or migration. And so this research um, and toolkits that they offer are tips for how to have manageable growth. Specifically, the Western Gateway, I would recommend the webinar that you can find if you look up this initiative in our show notes. Um, and what they're trying to address is housing affordability, traffic congestion, impacts on community character, and natural resources. Mm-hmm. So really those things we talked about in the beginning of who cares about this, residents, how are they going to be able to get around once mm-hmm. their city overnight becomes, you know, A having increased, right, increase mm-hmm. in population. Um, and then the environment, too, is when you have the increased traffic, um, when you have increased construction to accommodate for the housing that's coming up. Um, I know I always think about we just consistently moving into the deer's home <laughs> and cannot be surprised when the deer and the raccoons mm-hmm. come back to come back to get or the bears. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, what does that what does that really look like? Um, I think it's just important to be mindful of the, the quality of life mm-hmm. um, and the sacrifices that you make, whether that's a, um, letting the fear take you out of the city, which is fine. Or whether you, you know, stay in the city and cope with maybe the, the maybe not so nice things that come with living in overpopulated mm-hmm. space, um, and so just kind of making those trade offs. Well, for context, we both made a move during the pandemic. You doubled down on DC area. Yeah, I switched coast. Both landed in city still. So like we didn't. Maybe we're an anomaly. Maybe we're like a minority population. So it's just interesting when I meet people. I've met some people who've made that move to Denver, out of L.A., mm-hmm. and different places, but I've also met people who've, like, bought a house here in L.A., and, like, this is where I'm going to stay. So I think it's now comes down to your personal preference. I think we're in that place where it's, like, normalized, and we're in that personal preference. And so... Well, and I wanted to add, too, mm-hmm. I always say, like, I thought... I was, before the pandemic, I was like, maybe I'll move to Texas. Like, I'll see what Texas has to offer. And something about the pandemic helped me appreciate DC. I got mm. to experience more of the nature. I went hiking a lot more. I got to see places like Navy Yard without traffic. I could find a parking spot. <laughs> um, you know, I could scoot if I wanted to and not feel like I was gonna, you know, there's mm. just less cars on the road. So I felt more comfortable to use different forms of transportation. Um, and it just made me appreciate, I really just like, I don't, I don't wanna be cliche, but I just fell in love with the city. Um, but it's going to be appreciated in different ways. So I was like, okay, I'm going to stay here for a while. So that was like my my. No, experience. I think that's appreciate. I think that everyone can appreciate that perspective because I think that's something, right? When you just watch the news, that's not talked about. Like, yeah. it may seem like cities were the worst place to be. And right. it's like, really not. <laughs> I was in the suburbs throughout the whole pandemic mm-hmm. and I hated it. It was the worst experience ever. And I would I would go to New York. I would go to Princeton. I would go to yeah. the city just because I wanted to be in that urban environment. It's like... 
my neighborhood realized, oh, we need sidewalks now. Like, we need speed humps now. Y'all got and sidewalks during... We did get oh, sidewalks. Wow. Yeah. And so we didn't have them my whole life. I grew up without sidewalks. And so it's... We had an opportunity. Like, I moved it. into in a, I moved into a city after living in the suburbs throughout the whole pandemic because it was just... I, I did not appreciate it at all. Like, it wasn't mm-hmm. a good experience. And so it's just interesting to see. But we're also planners. Right. So <laughs> we have a deep love for the city. My biggest takeaway is the focus on neighborhoods, right? And so that's what we talked about. When you're not going to that central business district and you're spending more of your day, right? So you're going to the office five days a week. That means you're spending 40 or 60 or 80 hours of your week away from your house, away from your residential neighborhood where you live. Mm. And now you're going to be at your house all of that time. And so your concern for what goes on in your neighborhood is now more important. Yeah. Right? Like, I'd be out looking mm-hmm. out the window you're there at 2 o'clock. Day. Like, what's going on? And so what that comes down to is when cities think about their investment in parks and mm-hmm. public spaces and streets and roads, that tends to focus on, excuse me, that central business district, whether that's downtown D.C. or Navy Yard or whether it's Century City or um, Beverly Hills. But now you have to focus on neighborhoods because that's where people are most times of the day. So you can't do all your programming and your park redesign at the main park. You have to go into those smaller neighborhoods and try to say, okay, well, this they need street trees. They need benches. They need garbage cans. The same way that your downtown did because this is now people are spending more of their time. And mm. so it, it changes kind of our investment strategy to be more neighborhood and people focused rather than more business focused. And then the other takeaway for me was what do we do with all this office space? Yeah. Right. We talked about some companies just not coming back into the office. Some companies going into a hybrid. Some companies taking up less space. So instead of having a thousand square feet, now they only need five hundred. And so there's going to be whole office buildings that are vacant. You drive down Wilshire, there's going to be office buildings that are vacant. We also have people living on the street. Yeah. I feel like this is an opportunity for us Mm -hmm. to do something that can be impactful moving forward. We're going to have a lot of. Buildings that already have water infrastructure, they already have electricity infrastructure. They don't need to be a brand new construction. And right there's difficulty from like an architecture perspective of converting an office into housing. Did you see examples of places that have either that were either doing that before COVID? Yeah, so I did. I saw a couple that were doing it before COVID, but I think the biggest players in it now are California. I saw that Governor Newsom added $400 million in his budget allocation for 2023-2024, specifically for initiatives for developers to convert office space into affordable housing. Okay. D.C. government also has an office to affordable housing task force, which they interestingly created in 2019. And so there's mm-hmm. a lot of, I think cities have realized this is, they're going to have an issue. Regard, one way or another, they're going to have an issue. Yeah. If their offices are vacant, they're not getting that revenue from their property taxes. Mm-hmm. And you have people on the street, you're not getting the appeal that you want. Let's make this is both beneficial for the city in terms of like the actual city government and also the residents. And so it's an opportunity. I think a lot of governments, you'll see that moving forward. A lot of places are going to be putting money towards and offering incentives to developers to do that. And I would like to see it happen at a federal level. May we advance the low income housing tax credit program to like, oh, if you do this, you get extra tax credits if you do it in an office space conversion. Yeah, I think with that, I would definitely like to see um, a lot of thought put to the intended people that they want to live. Like mm-hmm. You're saying people, you know, people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, how do we make those spaces feel inviting? Because I've seen a lot of um, 
cities that build uh, um, affordable housing or housing, short-term housing mm-hmm. for people who are experiencing homelessness. But that means they can't bring their stuff with them. Maybe they don't have um, safe places if they have a substance abuse mm-hmm. um, issue that they're working through. And so I think they really would have to, I, I think they call it wraparound services. Yeah. Like, I would like to see those places consider um, the populations that they really want to be served um, so that it's not just like, it doesn't turn into like chic mm-hmm. <laughs> apartments or people who could live anywhere or people that yeah. just live in maybe a traditional residential building. No, I think that's important. I think they have to be considerate into the strategy that they choose. But I think, you know, we talked about this in our budget episode, wherever they put money, that's where, that's when they mean business. So you can create a task force, you yeah. can create a little study, show me where it's in your budget. That's mm-hmm. when I know you're serious about this initiative. Right, exactly. Well, thank you all for joining us um, for our first episode of season three. We've been in this now since 2020. We started, (laughs) um, but we've been, I mean, well, 2023 will basically make four years that we've Mm -hmm. been discussing the idea of this podcast. Um, So it's nice to always come, be able to come together. We've been trying to figure out the last time we actually saw each other. I think it was the last time we recorded. Yeah. I mean, we see each other on camera, like at least once a week, Mm -hmm. (laughs) every other week, if, if not, um, and so you can follow us on the number four degrees pod on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and we are also, oh, you can also send us an email. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've gotten some emails. Right. Oh, exciting. Yeah. If you look in our show notes, you can find all the information on this episode, our sources, um, and then also where to, where to contact us. Mm-hmm. Well, peace out y'all.